0: This program is brought to you by Emory University. We're going to start the session on uh, brain evolution. And our uh, first speaker is uh, Professor Jim Rilling from the anthropology department at Emory University. And he's going to speak on comparative higher primate neuroimaging, insights into the evolution of human brain and mind. Jim. Okay, hello, everybody. Uh, I'd like to start by telling everyone that I have blue eyes. And I was really hoping it was because my ancestors were sexy. But I, I guess it's really because they were farmers. So I'll just have to live with that. Okay, so given that the theme of this conference is evolution, I thought it was appropriate to begin by just reviewing a few of the major events in primate evolution. Okay, So the first major event relevant to primate evolution occurred about 65 million years ago. And this is when the dinosaurs went extinct. Now, this was important for the mammals that were living at that time, because it created an opportunity for them to flourish and to radiate into the niches that had been vacated by the dinosaurs. And at least some of these mammals then evolved into primates. And it's at 55 million years ago when we have the first evidence for true primates in the fossil record. Now another time period of great significance for primate evolution is the Miocene epoch, which lasted from about 23 until about 5 million years ago. During this time, the apes were the rulers of the primate world. And in stark contrast to our current situation, where there are only a handful of ape species on the planet, during the Miocene, it's been estimated that there were as many as 100 different ape species, ranging across not only Africa, but also Europe and Asia. Now, ultimately, though, as far as we know from these 100 or so different ape species, only one of these evolved into a creature capable of things like language and stone tool making and and, um, long range planning and advanced forms of theory of mind. And so what I'd like to talk about today is how the brain of this one ancestral ape species was modified throughout human evolution to endow our species alone with these very special mental abilities. Okay, So the direct evidence that we have for uh, human brain evolution comes from the very rare fossilized skulls of our ancestors. So when conditions are just right, and we're really fortunate, the skull of one of our, our ancestors will fossilize. And when that happens, we can make a cast of the inside of that skull. And we can measure the volume of that cast as an approximation of the brain volume of that specimen. Okay, So this has now been done for a large sample of fossil hominin species so that it's now possible to estimate how brain size changed in our lineage in the time since we shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees approximately six million years ago. And this is a slide that you've seen um, earlier from Matt Ridley, but this slide shows that something very dramatic happened in the last three million years of human evolution, and that is that brain size approximately tripled. And I think it's really important to realize that this fact alone may go a long way to to explaining many of the unique features of the human mind. Okay, so we've learned a lot about human evolution by studying fossil endocasts. But there are a lot of questions about human brain evolution that can't be answered by studying endocasts. And that's because endocasts don't tell us anything about the internal composition of the brain about the the internal organization of the brain. And so here are some things that we can't learn about human brain evolution by studying fossil endocasts. So we can't learn whether some parts of the brain expanded more than others throughout human evolution. And we can't learn whether the connectivity of the brain, whether the way that the brain was wired has been modified throughout human evolution. Nor can we learn about whether there have been any changes in the the morphology of of neurons or in the way that they're arranged within the cerebral cortex. We can't learn if there were any changes in the chemicals that neurons use to communicate with each other. And we can't learn whether there were any changes in the, the functional activity of different parts of the brain throughout human evolution. To learn about these things, we have to turn to an alternative source of evidence, which is the comparative study of the brains of living primate species. So this is a much less direct form of evidence, but it allows us to ask a much uh, larger range of questions about human brain evolution. So this is a uh, a picture of a simplified phylogenetic tree that illustrates the evolutionary relationship between um, humans and um, some of the other living primate species. The fundamental rationale behind the comparative approach to the study of human brain evolution is that if we can identify a characteristic of the human brain that is absent from the brains of all other primates, living primate species, including especially our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, then we can infer that that characteristic evolved in this lineage, in the human lineage, in the time since we diverged from chimpanzees about 6 million years ago. So in our own work, we use non-invasive uh, neuroimaging to compare the human brain with the brains of other primate species. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And here are a list of some of the features of the brain that we've compared um, across different primate species. So brain size, the size of different brain structures, the extent to which the the cortex, the outer covering of the brain is folded or um, gyrified is a term that we use for that. Um, both the size and the trajectory of the major fiber tracks that carry information in the brain. So we're looking here at how the brain is wired. And also regional brain activity, so functional activity of different brain areas. Okay, so actually what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start by telling you the things that we think we've learned about human brain evolution with comparative neuroimaging. And after I tell you those things, I'm going to go back and tell you how it is that we've learned these things. So first of all, um, and this has been known for a very long time, um, the human brain is much bigger than the brain of any other primate. The um, next largest brain belongs to either the orangutan or the gorilla, and the human brain is about three times bigger than an orangutan or or a gorilla brain. But the next question we can ask is whether the human brain is simply a scaled-up version of a non-human primate brain, or whether, in addition to quantitative differences in in brain size, are there also qualitative differences in the human brain? In other words, is it organized differently from the brains of other primate species? And our answer to that question is yes. And one example are the uh, temporal lobes of the brain. Um, we found that the uh, human temporal lobes are larger than one would predict for a primate of our brain size so they've expanded more than you would expect once you account for the fact that our brains are bigger than the brains of other primates and this is important because the cortex on the lateral surface of the left temporal lobe is well known for its involvement in language which of course is one of the most obvious human specializations Our third conclusion is that um, another example of reorganization in the human brain is that the prefrontal cortex is significantly more gyrified or more folded than one would expect for a primate of our brain size. And according to one hypothesis, this reflects an augmentation of cortical-cortical connectivity within the human prefrontal cortex. I'll talk more about that later. Fourth, when we compare humans to chimpanzees and rhesus macaques, um, we found that the arcuate fasciculus pathway, which is the pathway that links Broca's and Wernicke's um, language areas, is much larger in humans, and it it projects to a much larger um, territory within both the temporal and the frontal lobes in humans compared with other primates. Fifth, again, compared with chimpanzees and rhesus macaques, the human brain has a stronger um, left hemisphere bias in a measure called fractional anisotropy, which I'll explain later. But basically, we think this is a correlate of things like myelination of white matter fibers and also of um, white matter fiber density as well. And this um, left hemisphere bias that we see in humans but not in chimps seems to be concentrated in in long-distance pathways that have to travel uh, from, say, the frontal lobe to the parietal lobe or the frontal lobe to the temporal lobe. Um, So they're they're pathways that link association cortices in the brain. And finally, we've um, looked at resting state brain activation. So this is a a measure of functional brain activity. And we've noted some uh, very intriguing similarities between humans and chimpanzees which raises the possibility that the two species are engaged in similar mental operations when they're in a resting state but we we've, we've also observed some differences namely in the form of uh, additional activation in left hemisphere areas that relate to language again Wernicke's and Broca's areas and and this is suggested to us that even when humans are resting quietly we can't help but use language to think with. We're we're always thinking with with words. Okay, so now let me, uh, I'm going to go back and tell you how it is that um, we've learned these things and I'm going to tell you about um, a variety of different neuroimaging techniques that we've employed to try to answer these questions. So I'll talk about MRI which we've used to measure the size of different brain structures and also to compare um, cortical gyrification across species. Then I'll talk about diffusion tensor imaging, or DTI for short, which we've used to compare cortical connectivity, as well as um, hemispheric asymmetries and the microstructure of white matter. And finally, I'll talk about a functional neuroimaging technique that we've used, um, PET imaging, to compare regional brain glucose metabolism across species. So let's start with uh, MRI. The the chief sort of advantage of MRI as an imaging technique is its ability to provide highly detailed images of brain anatomy, as you can see here. Uh, It still amazes me every day when we go over to the imaging center and we're able to acquire um, an image like this of the entire human brain in about four minutes. It's really uh, pretty remarkable. Um, so non-human primate subjects have to be anesthetized before their MRI scans because if they move their heads we get uh, artifact in our images so this is a picture of a female chimpanzee who's um, been anesthetized and this structure that you see around her head is called the head coil Um, it's the same coil that we use for human subjects and this coil is what receives the MRI signal from the the brain of the subject In our initial uh, studies back in the mid-1990s, we acquired whole-brain MRI scans from um, several representatives of 11 different anthropoid primate species, and I'll just quickly run through um, some of those species. Uh, Two, we we, uh, scanned two representatives of the New World monkeys. These are the monkeys from South America, uh, the squirrel monkeys and Cebus monkeys. Um, three old world monkey species, so these are monkeys from Africa and Asia sooty mangabees, the um, rhesus macaques, and baboons. We also scanned uh, gibbons, who are a, a representative of the lesser apes. And then um, at that time, we, we were fortunate enough to, to be able to scan representatives of, all, of the, all four of the species of great apes. So we have um, data from orangutans gorillas, chimpanzees, um, and even bonobos. And then, of course, we have some um, data from human subjects as well. So Matt and I chose the same uh, picture of Darwin completely independently. Um, Okay, so the first question we wanted to ask was whether the size of different brain structures in the human brain could be predicted based on non-human primate trends or whether some brain regions had expanded more or less than you would expect um, in human evolution. And so we were particularly interested in looking at areas of the brain that are involved in language, because language seems to be the one thing that most obviously distinguishes humans from other primate species. And the, the cortex that you see here, colored green on the lateral surface of the temporal lobe, is well known for its involvement in both um, processing word sounds or phonological processing as well as in uh, lexical semantic processing or processing word meanings. And so we uh, divided the temporal lobe of each subject into seven equally spaced slices. And then we took a series of measurements on each of those slices. And um, what you see here is that when we just look at overall temporal lobe volume as a whole that the human temporal lobes are significantly larger than one would predict for a primate of our brain size. What this suggests is that something special happened to the human temporal lobes throughout human evolution that caused them to be displaced from this regression curve that we fit through um, the non-human primates. Now, more recently, using some more modern techniques, uh, another research group has used the the chimpanzee MRI scans that we collected to calculate the deformation fields that you need in order to warp a chimpanzee brain into the same space as a human brain. And what you see here, um, the colored areas are the areas that need to be expanded in the chimp brain Uh, so that the chimp brain will match the shape of the human brain. And I just want to draw your attention to that in this independent study, they found uh, these temporal lobe regions needed to be expanded, um, as well as uh, the inferior frontal lobes, which is intriguing because uh, I'm sure many of you know that Broca's area is here in the inferior frontal lobe, so another (coughs) language region where we see expansion in the human brain relative to the chimp brain. So we've also used MRI to compare gyrification across um, species. And we can uh, quantify the extent to which the cortex is gyrified or folded using this measure called the gyrification index, which is simply a ratio of the length of the total cortical surface, which includes the cortex that's buried within the sulci, to the length of the outer cortical surface. OK, so it's a measure of the the proportion of the cortical surface that's buried within cerebral sulci. And it's been known for many years now that as primate brains get larger, they become more gyrified. And our MRI data um, provide confirmation of this very strong trend. So you can see here, if we just look at the gyrification index across the entire brain uh, against brain size, that as uh, brain size increases, the brain becomes more convoluted. The other thing to note is that the human data point seems to fit the non-human primate regression quite well. Okay? So, so when you look across the brain as a whole, it doesn't look as though humans are any more gyrified than you would expect uh, for a primate of our brain size. But there, are, there is one specific region where humans appear to be more gyrified than you would expect for our brain size, and that's in the prefrontal cortex and so what you see here are slices through the prefrontal cortex in all of those eleven anthropoid species that I showed you Um, the smaller brains have obviously been enlarged so that they're they're the same size roughly as the humans but um, these are in ascending order of brain size and you can see um, how convoluted the human prefrontal cortex is Um, When we do the allometry, so we we plot the gyrification of that slice through the prefrontal cortex against brain size, you can see that the human data point is above that regression line. And so the interpretation is that the human prefrontal cortex is significantly more uh, gyrified than one would expect for a primate of our brain size. So what does that mean or what might be the, the functional significance of that? Well, there may be a number of factors that contribute to cortical folding. But in 1997, David Van Essen proposed that it was the the mechanical tension along axons that connect strongly interconnected regions of cortex that causes these outward folds uh, to appear, these gyri. So here, for example, we have two regions of cortex that are strongly interconnected. And the idea is that the tension along the white matter axons is what causes the the cortex to buckle or to fold there. And if this hypothesis is correct, then it would suggest that the human brain has more of this cortical-cortical connectivity within the prefrontal cortex compared with other primate species. And it's hard to know what that means at a cognitive level, but maybe it implies something about increased integration of of information in, in the human prefrontal cortex. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to, um, to DTI or diffusion tensor imaging. So DTI is a technique that images the diffusion of water in the brain, and when water diffuses to the same extent in all directions, we refer to that as isotropic diffusion. But when there are barriers to diffusion, and diffusion is preferred in some directions over others, we call that anisotropic diffusion. Now, the main barriers to the diffusion of water in the brain are the cell membranes that surround axons, as well as the myelin that coats those um, axons. And so, the axons are the structures that, um, in the white matter, that the connections. Okay. And um, what this means is that water will preferentially diffuse parallel to the direction in which axons are oriented in the brain rather than perpendicular to to the direction in which they're oriented. We can uh, represent the principal direction in which water is diffusing in the brain with these uh, images here, which is this is called a DTI color map. And the different colors signify different directions of water diffusion. So um, here you can see the uh, corpus callosum, which... So first of all, this is a coronal section, so this is the top of the brain and this is the bottom of the brain. Um, The corpus callosum we know carries information from one hemisphere to the other. And so we know the fibers are moving across the hemisphere this way so what happens is when you have diffusion that's moving right to left uh, that shows up red in these color maps Um, the corticospinal tract we know that that's carrying information from the cortex down to the spinal cord that shows up blue which indicates that diffusion is primarily in this dorsal to ventral direction and um, when diffusion is anterior to posterior so from the front of the brain to the back of the brain it shows up green and the superior longitudinal fasciculus is an example of um, one of those fiber tracks so this pathway would be coming uh, out of the plane of the uh, slide that you're looking at. Now we can then use this information about the principal direction of water diffusion to attempt to reconstruct major fiber tracks in the brain and so what you see here is a reconstruction of the arcuate fasciculus pathway in um, the human brain. And so this is the front of the brain, this is the back, and here you see the arcuate projecting out into the temporal lobe and here into the inferior frontal uh, cortex. DTI also provides us with another useful metric, and that is uh, fractional anisotropy. So what you see here is an image of fractional anisotropy. Uh, fractional anisotropy is the fraction of water diffusion that is anisotropic and it can take on values between zero and one uh, when fa values are closer to zero that means that the diffusion is more isotropic and those parts of the brain will show up uh, dark on these fa images and when um, there's a high degree of anisotropy those regions show up bright on these uh, FA images, and FA will be closer to one in that case. The reason this is interesting is because there are a number of factors that can affect FA values in the brain that are of interest to us. So one of those is the degree to which the fibers are myelinated, um, the density of the fibers, their size, and also the coherence of the fibers, the extent to which the fibers are all uh, moving in the same direction. OK, so the first thing we wanted to do was to use DTI to compare cortical connectivity across species. And we were particularly interested in, again, fiber tracks involved with language, since Terry Deakin and many other anthropologists before him have argued that sort of the, the quintessential human specialization is language. So we thought this is a good place to look for, for differences. Now, according to the the classic model of brain language processing as proposed by Geschwind in the 1960s, um, there's one area in the posterior part of the left superior temporal gyrus known as Wernicke's area that's involved in speech comprehension. And then there's another region in the left inferior frontal cortex known as Broca's area that's involved in speech production. And those two language regions are linked by a fiber tract, which is known as the arcuate fasciculus. So we decided that it would be interesting to compare the size and the trajectory of the arcuate fasciculus pathway in humans, um, in our closest living relatives, the chimpanzee, and also in macaque monkeys. Before we uh, tracked the arcuate pathway, we thought it was important to track a couple of control pathways that we didn't expect to differ very much across species. So we did that with a tract known as the cingulum bundle and also with the corticospinal tract and we observed similarity across all three species in these pathways. But when we turned our attention to the arcuate pathway, we noticed some very marked species differences. this is a, a again a color map of the human brain where this is the front of the brain and this is the back and this is this is a parasagittal section. Um, and this gives you a really nice view of the arcuate pathway here. So where the pathway is moving anterior to posterior, um, between the frontal and, and parietal regions, it's green. And then when it dives down here into the uh, temporal lobe, it turns blue, and as it wraps around into the temporal lobe again, it turns green. And we see this, this pattern in all of our human subjects. And so you can see again up here this characteristic green, blue, green pattern in the humans. Now contrast that with what we see in chimps where instead of this region of blue in the hook of the arcuate fasciculus, we instead have a region of red. And so that means that the, the water is diffusing in a completely different direction in the hook of the arcuate in and chimps. And, and that, Uh, in theory the fibers are moving in a different direction as well. Um, And the same is true in macaques. Their pattern of diffusion in the arcuate looks very different from what we see in humans. So then we can uh, apply tractography to try to reconstruct the arcuate fasciculus in these species and this pathway happens to run in very close proximity to two other pathways um, one of those is the superior longitudinal fasciculus and another one is the extreme capsule pathway. so it's, it's very difficult for the tractography algorithms to keep those pathways separate so we decided to, to track them all collectively together and so what we did is we um, you place one sort of region of interest in this uh, coronal section around each of the three pathways and then we put a second region of interest in the uh, white matter beneath the temporal and parietal lobes. And then we use DTI to to identify all of the projections that that run between these two regions of interest. Okay. And when we do that, um, this is the result we get which uh, on the left are the, are the actual results but on the right is a, a schematic summary of the results that I'm going to use um, I'll, I'll take you through right now so in humans when we we track these pathways we find um, a projection to classic Wernicke's area here in the left uh, superior temporal gyrus but in addition to that we find massive projections beyond classic Wernicke's area um, in the ventral part of the lateral t- temporal lobes, so the middle and the inferior temporal gyri. Okay, and then in addition in humans, there's also a secondary ventral pathway that links Wernicke's and Broca's areas. This is uh, via the extreme capsule. But the important thing to note is that that arcuate pathway is much larger than the ventral extreme capsule pathway. In chimpanzees, we also find projections to what would be the homologue of classic Wernicke's area, but the number of um, subjects that have projections that that go ventral to that is limited, and in those subjects that do have it, it's not nearly to the same extent as what you find in humans. Um, Chimpanzees also have a ventral extreme capsule pathway linking these two areas, but again, In chimps, just as in humans, that dorsal arcuate um, pathway is larger than the ventral extreme capsule pathway. And in macaques, we again find some terminations in what would be the homologue of um, human Wernicke's area. But in macaques, the interesting thing is that this ventral extreme capsule pathway is, is relatively larger than the dorsal arcuate fasciculus pathway. The take-home point is that the real human specialization seems to be in this very large projection that extends well beyond classic Wernicke's area into the the middle and inferior temporal gyri. The reason this is interesting is because um, a recent meta-analysis by Vigneault and colleagues concluded that these gyri, the, the left, middle, and inferior temporal gyri, are specifically involved in lexical semantic processing or processing the meaning of words. And so we think the arcuate fasciculus pathway is is carrying this information about word meaning forward to Broca's area where a lot of additional grammatical processing goes on so that we can comprehend sentences. <coughs> we also think that when when we speak we use the arcuate fasciculus to reach back into Uh, the temporal lobe, to retrieve the words that correspond to the the meanings that we want to convey. And then, of course, Broca's area is is responsible for speech, so somehow that information has to get back to Broca's area so we can actually articulate the, the, the meanings that we're thinking about. Okay, We've also used DTI to look at hemispheric asymmetries in uh, white matter microstructure by looking at fractional anisotropy values. In 1993, Michael Corballis published a book in which he argued that many of the, the special features of the human mind can be explained by specializations of our left hemisphere that are lacking in other primates and one of the the problems with this hypothesis has been that many of the the left hemisphere um, asymmetries in terms of anatomy that were initially identified in the human brain and that were thought to potentially relate to language have subsequently also been found in chimpanzees and so it remains to be seen exactly to what degree the human left hemisphere is unique so we were interested in looking at these fractional anisotropy Um, values to see whether the human left hemisphere looked unique in that respect. And so this is an illustration of our results. Um, This is a human and a a chimp brain. The chimp brain has obviously been expanded to to approximate the size of the human brain. What you see in green are the um, areas of of the brain over which we conducted our statistical analysis okay so this is called the white matter skeleton um, and that's those are the regions where we we actually ran the statistical tests and um, then the areas that you see in yellow are areas where we found significant hemispheric differences so areas where fractional anisotropy was higher in the left than the right hemisphere and the areas that you see in blue are areas where fa was higher in the right than the left hemisphere what you can see at least in this particular section um, is that humans have many more voxels that are significantly asymmetric and moreover there's a very strong leftward bias the other interesting thing is that where we find these hemispheric differences are in these these long distance pathways like the arcuate fasciculus pathway and like the superior longitudinal fasciculus and the inferior longitudinal fasciculus. These are pathways that connect association cortices in different parts of the brain. So we don't know for sure what this means, but if, for example, it reflects uh, hemispheric differences in myelination, then that might imply that the human left hemisphere is designed for a very rapid transmission of information because myelination speeds up the, the conduction velocity of action potentials. So it could be that because the human brain is so big, it's important that information be transmitted um, quickly, especially to areas of the brain that are very distant from one another. And it, it may be the case that the human left hemisphere is really specialized for that. Okay, and um, finally, I'd like to talk about uh, PET imaging, which is, this is now a a functional imaging technique. Um, We use PET imaging to image regional brain glucose metabolism. Um, Glucose is the main fuel that the brain uses for energy. And the molecule that we use in these studies is known as F18FDG. Um, This is just a radioactively- labeled uh, glucose molecule and the way these studies work are uh, we begin by administering a dose of F18 FDG to the subject we do this in humans we usually administer it intravenously in chimps they usually drink it Um, and as soon as the dose is administered the FDG begins to accumulate in whatever cells of the body are most metabolically active okay and then it has the fortunate property that um, it doesn't leave those cells very quickly so it basically gets trapped within those cells and what that means is that after all the fdg has gotten into those cells which takes about an hour we can then sedate the animal uh, and we can scan them under anesthesia but it's it's critical to realize that we're not imaging brain activity under anesthesia We're imaging the brain activity that occurred during this uptake period when the animal was awake and conscious um, and engaged in whatever task you had them doing at the time. This just shows you what the uh, PET scans look like. So these areas that are white to yellow are the areas that are more radioactive and, and therefore those are the areas that have higher rates of glucose metabolism. Okay, so when people are resting quietly but not engaged in any particular type of of task, it turns out that there's a neural network in the brain that is tonically active in this resting state. And that network is known as the default mode network. And you see it here. It consists mainly of three different nodes, the uh, medial prefrontal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, and the lateral parietal cortex. Now, the interesting thing about this network is that not only is it active in the quiet resting state, but it's also active if you ask somebody to reflect on something that happened to them in the past, um, which you can see here, or if you ask someone to rehearse something that they're going to do in the future, or if you ask someone to make inferences about the mental states of someone else. And this has led to the hypothesis that this network might be involved more generally with something like mental self-projection. So, projecting yourself into the past, or projecting yourself into the future to rehearse something, or projecting yourself into another individual's mind. And if that's the case, then it it could be the case that when humans are in this quiet resting state, that they do a lot of mental self-projection. Well, if you ask people who are resting quietly in the scanner what they're thinking about, these are the types of things that they mention, which do seem consistent with, with the idea that they're engaging in mental self-projection. I just wanted to add that it's not difficult to imagine how something like mental self-projection um, may have been actively selected for throughout human evolution, how it may well have been quite adaptive. Um, As you know, for most of human history, our ancestors were living as hunter-gatherers, and if we look at modern-day hunter-gatherers, they do things like bury water in ostrich eggshells for a drought that will be coming in the future, so they have to prospect into the future. Um, And they do things like track animal prey where they have to kind of get inside the mind of the, the prey that they're tracking. So it's, just, it's not hard to imagine how these, this capacity might be selected for. Well, what about chimpanzees? Do they have anything like a default mode network? And if they do, this might actually give us some insights into what they think about when they're resting. And so we scanned a group of five uh, chimpanzees and eight humans in a resting state. Um Okay, my, my uh, there's a video coming, so I, I think that's why it's slow um, Okay, so this is uh, this is actually a video of a chimp in a resting state. Um, it's going to be the most boring video you've ever seen, so I, <laughs> I uh, uh, but This is the chimp's face, and her feet are here, and uh, you can hardly see her, but I guess I'll play it. So if you see anything, you see some slight movement, which at least indicates that she's not sleeping. And um, this is kind of what the resting state looked like. This is the scanner that we use to to scan the chimps. It's a high-resolution research tomograph um, here at Emory. And um, these are our results. So along the midline, we were impressed by the amount of similarity we observed between humans and chimps. So in both species, we saw uh, activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, one of those nodes of the default mode network, and also in the medial parietal cortex. And so this raises the intriguing possibility that like humans, when chimps are in the resting state, they're engaged in some type of mental self-projection. On the other hand, when we move to the lateral surface of the brain, in humans we see um, very pronounced leftward asymmetry. So we see a lot of activity in the left hemisphere that we don't see in the right. And interestingly, this is uh, clustered around again, Wernicke's and Broca's regions. Whereas in chimps, um, the pattern looks much more symmetric. And again, we think that this means that when when people are in the resting state, they just can't help but think with words, that language is always sort of fundamental to human thought. So let me just uh, conclude again, and this time I'm going to repeat what I said earlier, but I'll I'll do it with um, pictures. So what do we know... Or what have we learned about how the the human brain was modified in the time since we shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees about six million years ago? Well, the first thing that we know is that the brain enlarged uh, dramatically, about threefold. Secondly, we know that something very special happened to the human temporal lobes, that they expanded more than we would expect when we take into account the, the extent to which the brain enlarged. Thirdly, the human prefrontal cortex is more gyrified than you would expect for a primate of our brain size. And that may tell us something about the the amount of cortical-cortical connectivity in the human prefrontal cortex compared with other species. Fourth, the arcuate fasciculus pathway has been remodeled. It's become larger, and it now projects to a much larger territory within both the temporal and the frontal lobes and we think this is relevant to the evolution of language. Um, Fifth, left hemisphere asymmetries in fractional anisotropy have emerged, especially in long distance pathways linking association cortices in the brain, and this may be to um, increase the the speed of of, uh, action potentials in the left hemisphere. And finally, Resting state brain activity has expanded to also include areas of the brain that are involved in uh, processing language. So um, that's uh, my summary, and I'd like to uh, (coughs) conclude by thanking all of the people who've been involved in this research, there are many of them. Um, A special thanks to my former student, Matt Glasser, who was really the engine behind the uh, DTI studies. Uh, thanks to Bhargav uh, Kumar Rangi, a postdoc who did the TBSS uh, FA asymmetry analysis. Sarah Barks, who assisted with the resting state PET scans. And uh, special thanks to uh, Todd Preuss, who's been instrumental in all of these studies. You'll hear from him later today, but he's been a real inspiration um, to me and all of this work. So thank you very much for your attention. <clears throat>